Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation, as well as by support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In this first week of March, we kick off Women's History Month in conversation with one of the great critical thinkers and writers of our time, Rebecca Solnit. Self-described as a writer, historian, and activist, Rebecca's long bibliography epitomizes her wide-ranging humanitarian interests. From politics to cultural geography to environmentalism and an abiding love of the earth herself to many feminist essays. All topics in her hands are revelations on our culture's many fault lines and the human actions and responses from walking to reading to traveling with open minds, eyes, and hearts that might bridge these lines. While many of Rebecca's titles fall firmly under the purview of the concerns of cultivating place, it was her 2021 title, Orwell's Roses, that was the catalyst for my inviting her to be a guest on the program. That and a nudge from Maria Popova. Rebecca joined me virtually from her home in San Francisco, the life of which you can hear going on behind her. Rebecca, as a devoted reader of yours for a good bit of my adult life, welcome to Cultivating Place. I'm very glad to be here. I've introduced you in this very spare way. Rebecca, I would love to have you introduce yourself to listeners and, you know, maybe include. Uh, the idea of what plants mean to you or in what roles they are important in your life and um, whether that's gardening or whatever it might be. I grew up in a bunch of different places before we settled in the Bay Area and we lived in Novato, which was a terrible place culturally and a wonderful place naturally. I had a difficult family, and so the two refuges for me were the public library to the south and vast amounts of open space, more or less everything between our little cul-de-sac on the edge of town and Petaluma, so miles and miles of open space, which of course was classic California oak grassland and bits and pieces of other um, habitat and just spent hours and hours roaming those landscapes, fascinated by them, trying to figure out how to be in them in deeper ways, reading about botany and native California and, you know, kind of little house on the prairie, people really living on the land stuff. My parents were big city people, so they didn't really have any guidance to offer. And, but I was, always kind of turning towards the natural world, uh, the, you know, open places uh, then. And even before then, my first memories are when we lived for a year in Lima, Peru, the year I was two. And I don't remember this, but we had a Quechua woman named Ophelia who was helping my mother who would take me out and steal flowers for me and apparently and then sort of hold me up in all my flossy foreignness as a kind of justification for taking the flowers and i 
you know, that's only a story I know. But when we moved to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, from there, I became a flower thief myself with one of my brothers for whom I think the thieving was more exciting. But for me, it was really about the flowers. And hmm. apparently we picked all the tulips off of Black Fraternities lawn, which my mother understood could mean something rather untoward. So she made us come and apologize. This would have been me at three and four. But I remember <laughs> a huge a huge rose. I remember watering tulips with a watering can by filling the flower with water, red tulips, sort of crystalline water and this kind of almost hallucinogenically vivid sense of things. So the natural world was always really important to me. There's this kind of vivid source of epiphanies and pleasures and stimulations as well as a kind of refuge. Yeah, beautiful. And in those stories you just shared, I, I hear so many of the themes and motifs that run through your exploratory writing um, in so many ways. One question that I will ask before we get into um, a little more than that is, are you a gardener, Rebecca? I am in a not very impressive way. I live in San Francisco. I'm in charge of the little garden that our four-unit building has, which is just um, kind of a C-shaped um you know, or three strips of of earth along the edge of the concrete slab the back steps come down onto. It's got a six-foot fence around it and, you know, neighbors three-story buildings around it. So it doesn't get enough sun for really thriving vegetables and things like that. So I have a tragic lemon tree, a triumphant fig tree, a truly spectacular lemon verbena, a pretty good tree fern in the really shady place on uh, the south side, but it gets, you know, the shade from the the fence and uh, salvias and other things going. And I'm really restless for a much better chance to garden and hope to move sometime in the next little while. And sort of top of the list is, you know, bigger, bigger patch of dirt, more sun to get it going in, which yeah. We'll probably just mean moving across the bay somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny how people kind of qualify, like not really much of a gardener, but then you just shared a beautiful garden image, you know, a, a very full-bodied relationship with, with these plants and that little space, which is beautiful. When you go back in your own life and you think about your trajectory as a writer, as a historian, as an activist, and you look at how some of these passions that you shared from being a child in in the the places you were a child, uh, which are varied, from Novato to Peru to Cincinnati, uh, and and from there, maybe share a little bit more about how some of these passions deepened as your your educational. Um, and your personal life progressed towards your what would become your professional and and personal life. I mean, your your writing is filled with who you are and where you are and what you are thinking about. And so, um, I don't I don't see them as separate. Um, but maybe take us on on that journey because at this point, you've been writing for decades. You have many, many, many books. You are a regular contributor to The New Yorker, The Guardian, The New York Times. And so 
Um, well, I wish I could unpack every single book, Rebecca. Let's stay focused on that arc. And then and we're going to move into your most recent book, uh, which is particularly compelling to me in this stage in my life. And that's Orwell's Roses. Thank you. Yeah, no, as a kid, I was just passionate about the natural world, about horses and animals and botanizing, um, steel and conquered grapes and pomegranates and things. There's a lot of theft in this narrative, isn't there? From, you know, just the way kids poach things to eat. Uh, yeah. Probably we're not going to be eaten by others. And just roaming. And somehow adolescence really turned me towards cities as the place I could escape to, the place I could form myself in. You know, I started going into San Francisco for punk rock concerts and cultural things. And then I kind of ran off to Paris and then came back and moved into San Francisco. So I had several years where I kind of turned away from the natural world. And it was really only maybe around 23 or 24, I turned back to it with just a real passion, just incredibly strong desire to be in the landscape, in the hills, in the natural world, never really to garden in those stages. And I was working at a little art magazine, working around a lot of visual artists. I also wanted to know what it meant, how to think about it. And it was an exciting moment for a lot of site-specific and land-related art, people like Helen and Newton Harrison, a lot of landscape photographers who had become friends and parts of my life, including the Kawea indigenous artist, Louis DeSoto, the photographer, uh, Richard Mizrak, um, you know, the Water in the West project, uh, eventually the photographer, Mark Klett, who I've done three or four books with. And, um, so I was looking for all these people to kind of help me think about what are we looking at? What is our relationship to it? What can it be? How do we get there? Not just in sort of planting our physical selves on, you know, sort of unpaved land, but how do we get there into a relationship with it? One wonderful early guide was the photographer, Linda Connor, who talked about mm -hmm gender and landscape and his work has been more about sacred places than natural places as it's turned out, but who also has never really separated them. And of course, for a lot of cultures and a lot of times and places, the natural and the sacred aren't separate. And she's also been very compelled by indigenous cultures. And, uh, you know, and I also started volunteering for environmental organizations. I've been thinking about my involvement with climate action and thinking in a way I could trace it back to being with Rainforest Action Network when it was a very young organization and I was a volunteer there around 1988. Hmm. Uh, I remember talking about the rainforest as the lungs of the planet and some businessmen at this little demonstration were out in downtown San Francisco saying, no, it's the oceans. And of course, it's both. And we now much better understand that Amazon is this great site of carbon sequestration. So I had this impulse to understand and protect it as well as to just be in it. And those three things happened together. And then a huge other portion of that, if this isn't too much, hmm. is as an anti-nuclear activist, um, I started going to the Nevada test site deep in the Southern Nevada desert where the US and the UK have set off more than a thousand nuclear bombs. 
you know, and they were still testing them in the late 80s when I started. And the space was so spectacular, so strange and unfamiliar, so compelling, and all the forces converging there, so powerful, the history of Western attitudes towards the desert, of the making of the atom bomb, of nonviolent direct action going back to Thoreau, and his resistance to another kind of war and slavery. And ultimately, I got involved with the Native American land rights movement because this was Western Shoshone land. And so I got drawn into the questions of whose whose land is it and how do we think about the land? And mm -hmm. I just had the incredible kind of joy of becoming a principal in the Western Shoshone Defense Project, spending a lot of time in Northeastern Nevada with these two rancher matriarchs, Carrie and Mary Dan, and ghost writing for Carrie, writing a lot of the stuff we would circulate, press releases and backgrounder statements, deeper histories. And they ran a bunch of cows, um, had a Mustang herd, raised a little bit of food. So it wasn't always the plant kingdom, but it was out there in the sagebrush ocean and the wonderful kind of sky islands of the, of the, the ranges between the sage mm -hmm. basins. And just this deep, deep relationship that they had. Their grandmother remembered when white people came. And so they were really part of this deep continuity of relationship for place and were really fighting for the right to be in their place, have jurisdiction over their place, not be pushed around by a government that had never stolen the place from them as it happened because it thought the desert was, as the New York Times adjectives always went in those days, empty, sterile, barren, useless. Yeah. And then have, of course, turned out to want to own Nevada very much and yeah. had to pretend that it had taken it. So a lot of those things were happening together, uh, sort of environmentalism, the way visual artists were thinking about our relationships and representing them, and then just spending time in the places themselves in Carrie and Mary Dan's place in Crescent Valley, Nevada, and at the same time, I began house sitting for Lucy Lepard, or maybe a little later, around 1994 in Galisteo on the New Mexico prairie outside mm -hmm. Santa Fe, kind of fell in love again with Santa Fe, where I'd spent the first years of my life, but didn't remember. I had a boyfriend in Joshua Tree for the second half of the 90s, spent a lot of time there, was getting assignments from Sierra Magazine to um, cover logging the sequoias in Sequoia National, or not the sequoias themselves, but logging in Sequoia National Forest mm -hmm. and yeah. how it was disturbing the survival of the big trees, uh, river trips to remote places and other kinds of things. So I was kind of throwing myself through every door that opened onto the natural world, intellectually, culturally, and literally. Yeah. Yeah. And in that, I hear so many of the themes that you trace. Um, you've used the word botanizing a couple of times. Who, who would have um, first introduced you to that idea of looking at plants and looking at their parts and identifying characteristics of them that would lead you to an identification and or um, a categorization of this is a rose or this is a buckwheat or... Um, where did that come to you from? One of my older brothers had a, a teacher in elementary school who 
had the kids botanize a lot. And of course, the wildflower array in the Bay Area is quite wonderful. The season's really long from the milkmaids of February to some of the late blooming stuff in, into August. And so I followed his example and then pursued it on my own. And I was also kind of fascinated with living off the land, with Native people leaching acorns with edible plants, and was reading books, sometimes kids' books like My Side of the Mountain. I don't know mm. if anybody remembers oh, it, yeah. <laughs> but it's about an East Coast kid who runs away and lives in a hemlock, tames a falcon, and That's lives great. off the land. We never really find out what made him want to get away. You know, and Yule Gibbons, books about... Yeah. Um, you know, stalking the wild asparagus about edible yeah. plants. And I think Ida Geary's leaf book and other things like that. Yeah. So it just felt like second nature that, it, and I think there was also the shadow into, in through the 1980s of a kind of survivalism, a mm -hmm. fascination with indigenous and pioneer people living off the land with edible plants, but also with the kind of life after apocalypse yeah. And I was thinking about it. Um, I still normally carry a pocket knife, except when there's going to be air travel. Right. <laughs> but it used to be normal for me to have a compass, a pocket knife, and maybe some matches with the sense that I could start figuring it out no matter where I landed. Right. And, right. you know, if the plane crashed, if, you know, and really thinking about that. And we grew up in. I'm not sure what your age is, but in my generation, with the sense that the apocalypse might happen, mm, yeah. thinking about what if everybody else disappeared, what if, you know, right. all these what ifs, and kind of readying myself in some way for these highly unrealistic what ifs. This is Cultivating Place. Self-described writer, historian, and activist Rebecca Solnit is one of the great critical thinkers and writers of our time. Her 2021 title, Orwell's Roses is an exploration into another great writer of the previous century, George Orwell's lifelong love and dedication to gardening and tending plants and land. Rebecca's tracing of this little plumbed aspect of Orwell's life leads to whole new understandings of the man and readings of his work, as well as striking insights on the human impulse to garden. We'll be back for more with Rebecca Solnit after a quick break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. Each year, the Conservancy hosts national speaking tours, and in 2023, the Garden Conservancy's Spring National Speaking Tour features Dr. Sue Stewart-Smith, author of the best-selling book, The Well-Gardened Mind. Dr. Stewart-Smith will be speaking on March 1st at the Norton Museum of Art in West Palm Beach, Florida, discussing how psychology, 
mental health, and the natural world are all interconnected. This will be the first of five talks, including others in Massachusetts, New York, and California. For more information on the Spring National Speaking Tour or to purchase tickets for these talks around the Well Garden Mind, please go to gardenconservancy.org forward slash events. Hey, it's Jennifer. So I want to read you a few passages from Orwell's Roses. This first one from the very first chapter of the book, titled Day of the Dead. Rebecca is writing about the history and meaning of trees in general. Quote, The oldest redwood in Muir Woods is 1,200 years old, so more than half of its time on Earth had passed before the first Europeans showed up in what they would call California. A tree planted tomorrow that lived as long would be standing in the 33rd century AD, and it would be short-lived compared to the bristle cones a few hundred miles east, which can live 5,000 years. Trees are an invitation to think about time and to travel in it the way they do, by standing still and reaching out and down. If war has an opposite, gardens might sometimes be it, and people have found a particular kind of peace in forests, meadows, parks, and gardens." End quote. I love that invitation as Rebecca sees it from trees, to stand still and reach out and down, deeper still. Mm. Keep gardening, gardeners. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with writer, thinker, activist, Rebecca Solnit, sharing more on her activist and professional arc that led to her assessing the life of one of her heroes, George Orwell, through the lens of his gardening life. Orwell's Roses is an incisive look back at the legacy of British colonialism, cultural, political, and environmental policy, and a celebration of gardening and loving the surface of the earth as acts of beauty, of resistance, and regeneration for the fight on behalf of the earth and our own best nature as humans. As we come back, Rebecca is describing the gardening and environmental lessons of both a nuclear test site in Nevada and Yosemite National Park in her life. The second book called Savage Dreams, A Journey into the Hidden Wars of the American West, which came out in 1994, was really about two places primarily, the Nevada test site where most people thought the nuclear wars we feared had not yet begun, even though they were going on at the rate of about a bomb a month for 40 years uh, there. And Yosemite National Park, where people either thought it was virgin wilderness, human beings first set foot in in 1851, which a lot of the signage and stuff back in the early 90s said, uh, or that there had been native people, but they'd somehow faded out in the 19th century. This awful photographer, 
said with a little smirk once, after the 1870s, they didn't make Indians in Yosemite anymore. But, and so I was fascinated. And there's a wonderful book about gardens in the face of war. And a garden is in some ways the opposite of war. Hmm. You know, it's a kind of, you know, we idealize it as a peaceful space. And so it was really a kind of a book about gardens and war. I say the test site taught me to write because I'd been writing in three different ways and the complexity of what was present required that journalism, that criticism, and that more lyrical personal style to kind of break down the fences and become one style that could cover yeah. more ground. And I had just a hunch that there was something weird about Yosemite. There's a book about it by a guy named Lafayette Bunnell, who was the surgeon to the US Army invading party that went into Yosemite to take away the native people, force them onto a reservation because they were interfering with maximum exploitation of the Sierra Nevada foothills during the gold rush. And there's this incredible moment on the shores of what's now called Lake Tenaya, where he tells the chief of one of the tribes there that his people would never live there again, but that's okay because we're going to name the lake after you. And the chief looks at him and says, it already has a name. And that little interaction said so much about colonialism, about the way white people came in and erased what was present with the sense it was a blank slate, they could inscribe their own histories on. And of course that happened to Yosemite. The Park Service managed it as virgin wilderness. John Muir begat this idea of virgin wilderness as a place apart, wrote native people out of the story or disparaged them as dirty and primitive and backward and ignorant in various ways. Well, what they didn't recognize, which resulted in more than a century of mismanagement, is the reason the Yosemite they arrived in looked like a garden is because at least in the valley it was, native people had selectively harvested, had cultivated certain plants and had set fires to keep it the open grassland with, with those beautiful black oaks that it should be, you suppress fire, you get tons of, you know, you, you get the conditions for the terrible fires of the 21st century, uh, huge amounts of buildup of undergrowth. And, uh, you know, and incense cedars overtaking the valley. I did this project with Mark Kled and Byron Wolf in the early 2000s, we photographing Yosemite from the 19th century pictures, and we could see these landscape changes happen in so many interesting ways. But I was really interested in how the way we think about nature and landscape and place determines what we can and can't see. And so people couldn't see the nuclear wars, couldn't see the Indian wars, couldn't see they were both happening simultaneously in a much more dynamic and unsettled and unsettling world than people thought they lived in. And with the native stuff, what was fascinating to me is you write native people out of the picture and you create three catastrophes. The first is for Native Americans themselves being told you don't exist, you're invisible, um, you're written out of the story, um, you're not part of the conversation is a form of cultural genocide that's utterly horrific. The second is for the white imagination when it can only imagine culture as somehow hostile and destructive to nature and nature as a place that has to be separate and apart. And the third is for the land management. If you don't acknowledge native hunting, native gathering, native 
cultivation of plants, native fire setting, you mismanage and misunderstand the landscape and create, you know, damage the land's own health. And so those things were so much part of Savage Dreams, how culture shaped how we thought about all these things and created these pockets of invisibility and these cultural, political, and ecological catastrophes. Yeah. Yeah. And all of these themes uh, come back again and again and again in your work. I mean, I think um, it is fair to say that that you are known as a a very wide ranging um, writer and thinker and questioner and um, an imaginer. Uh, and your focus, I think, can be kind of uh, distilled down perhaps, uh, and it is on your website as focusing on feminism, Western and urban history, popular power, social change and insurrection, wandering and walking, hope and catastrophe. And every one of these is in Orwell's Roses. And so I I would love to move to this uh, most recent of your books and what brought you to it and, you know, maybe what you saw in it from the beginning, but also uh, that may have evolved over time. Um, but let's just start with the catalyst that brought you to writing this book at, at the time that you you began writing it and then ultimately completed it. Yeah, I, and it began with a conversation with one of my best friends, Sam Green, who's a filmmaker, who'd been talking for years that about making a documentary about trees, which I'm happy to say he's now actually doing. And I'm also fascinated by trees. We would send bits and pieces of stuff back and forth by email, photographs, stories, facts, ideas. And I turned out to have a lot of tree lore. But we were hanging out at my place one time talking about this. He was talking about trees planted by notable people. And I said, oh, George Orwell planted a bunch of fruit trees in 1936, which I knew from this wonderful essay by Orwell called A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray, which is actually about planting trees and how to paraphrase that essay, the planting of a tree, particularly a long-lived hardwood tree, may outlive anything else you do, good or bad. And so he sort of advocates for it. He talks about a yew tree. Um, that the vic, you know, in the parish of Bray and another part of England. Then he talks about when he lived in Wallington and planted what he calls a job lot from Woolworths of fruit trees and rose bushes. And so Sam was very excited that Orwell had planted trees. I got on my laptop. We got on Google Earth. But of course, trees on aerial images just look like greed blobs and could be anything. So I happened to be on book tour for another book that fall of 2017 and going from London to Cambridge and I got off the train took a taxi out to that cottage Orwell had lived at thinking I was just having a little excursion to see if the fruit trees were still there for Sam and it was a wonderful country expedition first of all the taxi driver knew exactly where I was going he pulled <laughs> up the the uh, man who lived in the house was out front and he said, oh, I'll just introduce you to Graham, a service your taxi driver doesn't necessarily usually perform. Graham, who Sam had written to, apologized for not responding to Sam's letter, invited me in. His partner, Dawn, was gardening in the lovely back garden. 
And I had this long visit while the taxi meter ran. First, we established <laughs> that the fruit trees had been cut down in the 90s. Then we met Nigel, who remembered the fruit trees. And then uh, almost as an afterthought, they said, oh, but the roses are well planted are still growing. Would you like to see them? And like, would I ever? Right. And so that November 2nd, you know, in England, not a notably sunny country, those two roses were just bursting forth in bloom. And it was a beautiful shock to me in two ways. One of them was just to have such an immediate contact with Orwell, to meet something living that had had contact with him, made him much more immediate in a way than he had ever seemed before. I now have met um, his son. So, you know, I've gotten a little deeper into that. But, um, but the other thing that was exciting is that I had always loved that essay, but I'd seen it as kind of an outlier, the essay about planting the roses and trees. And I realized I never thought hard enough what it meant that George Orwell, our great anti-fascist, this intense political writer, this person who went to war against fascism literally with a rifle in Spain in 1936, had been a lover of roses. And it opened up so many things that I've been trying to talk about for a long time. The relationships between politics and beauty and pleasure. Yeah what sustains us to do the work that we're here on earth to do, um, how political the natural world can be. And, um, you know, and I also want, I realized almost immediately I, that I was going to turn it into a book and that would be a very free floating book that Orwell planting and cultivating and loving roses and gardening, you know, in many other ways was a starting point, but far from the ending point. But it felt like a way to address all these questions and to write a book in the age of climate change where we have to recognize that the earth we live on was shaped primarily by the plant kingdom. They are the big actors for oxygen and carbon sequestration for the atmosphere, for soil, for the surface of the earth. And that plants would be um, something possessed of great agency and something that in the spirit of Michael Pollan in Botany of Desire saying, we think we cultivate plants, but we can also see plants cultivating us to get, get us to plant them, tend them, you know, water, fertilize, uh, etc. And so to see the plants in this book that's as much about the roses as about Orwell is not a biography of Orwell, you know, as having real agency and real power and uh, so I wrote the book and it was a real joy. I can tell it was a real joy. It was a real joy to read and, and to really just uh, sit with for some time um, in a, a very reflective way. And of course, mine is full of notes. There's, you mentioned uh, as you are going through the book that you had read this essay, A Good Word for the Vicar much earlier and you had noted it and i think it's in this essay am i right that that you have the credo no it's actually in why i write okay okay will you read that credo for us so a decade after the essay about the vicar of bray he wrote an essay called why i write that has this incredible passage that's been my credo for decades he says Anyone who cares to examine my work will see that even when it is downright propaganda, it contains much that a full-time politician would consider irrelevant. 
I am not able and do not want completely to abandon the worldview that I acquired in childhood. So long as I remain alive and well, I shall continue to feel strongly about prose style, to love the surface of the earth, and to take a pleasure in solid objects and scraps of useless information. It is no use trying to suppress that side of myself. The job is to reconcile my ingrained likes and dislikes with essentially public non-individual activities that this age forces upon all of us. And there's something about that loving the surface of the earth and solid objects that is just so satisfying to read and especially to hear repeated across this book where you 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 go down this rabbit hole of this whole new way of looking at Orwell and you you use that as an access point to then trace what this means in both um its its uh most positive side and then its opposite negative side uh through through a couple of different stories through um how gardens and plant cultivation can be as much a part of oppression and um, and the lies that we tell ourselves or totalitarianism as they can be about what redeems us and and what makes us our most liberated and free. And it's a beautiful tension that you follow through these different stories. Um, I would love to start with what you just talked about, this I, this idea of beauty versus power or beauty versus um oppression and and how and why it it kind of shifts um in both of those in 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 these different settings of either oppression or liberation one of the things that was really exciting about discovering the roses and then going back to reread orwell who i thought i knew very well cuz i'd read a lot of his essays most of his books but I hadn't read his letters and his garden diaries was to find out that the, the general impression that has been given about Orwell as this very stern, austere, ascetic, pessimistic figure is completely inaccurate. He was a passionate gardener and he took a great deal of pleasure in things. And in his writing, he constantly defends the right to pleasure, to beauty, and to the privacy and freedom that lets you choose what those things might be for you. I settled on the, I arrived at the phrase bread and roses, which likewise I've been hearing all my life and realized right. I never fully understood what it meant. It was this radical statement first by a woman campaigning for women's voting rights in 1911 and then picked up by the labor movement and many other people. It's an assertion that what human beings need is not only bread, which I might remind everyone, it's still part of the, you know, wheat, part of the plant kingdom, but we need roses and here roses stand in for beauty, pleasure, joy, nature, culture. And in that they assert that human beings are, we're not just, you know, mechanical beings who need food, clothing, shelter, basic material sustenance. We need these metaphysical things that feed our souls, our imaginations. We are something much bigger and more subtle than that. And we need the freedom to choose what it is. This is Cultivating Place, 
Writer, historian, activist, Rebecca Solnit is one of the great thinkers and writers of our time. Her 2021 title, Orwell's Roses, is an exploration into George Orwell's lifelong love and dedication to gardening and tending to plants and land. Rebecca's tracing of this little plumbed aspect of his life leads to many striking insights on Orwell, on Orwell's works, and on what makes a life worth living. We'll be back for more after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer with another passage from Orwell's Roses. Here, Rebecca is writing about how she perceives Orwell's first adult garden with its fruit trees and roses in the aftermath of his returning home to England from war, well before he had begun to conceive his dystopian novel, 1984. Quote, the gesture of planting the roses and launching the garden could mean a thousand things. But for now, let it mean a collaboration with the world of and work of plants. The establishment and tending of a few more carbon sequestering, oxygen producing organisms. The desire to be agrarian, settled, to bet on a future in which the roses and trees would bloom for years, and the latter would bear fruit in decades to come, or even, as he wrote, a century hence. To garden is to make whole again what has been shattered. The relationships in which you are both producer and consumer in which you reap the bounty of the earth directly, in which you understand fully how something came into being. It may not be significant in scale, but even if it's a windowsill geranium high above a city street, it can be significant in meaning. End quote. Rebecca goes on to say, Orwell was thinking about the future and how to contribute to it when he advocated for the planting of trees as perhaps the most long-lasting gesture most humans can make. Quote, the man who planted those roses knew that to choose to be on the side of the plants also meant being on the side of the future. End quote. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with Rebecca Solnit, writer, historian, gardener, and activist. As we come back, Rebecca is sharing more on George Orwell's emphatic defense of liberty and the importance of beauty as a necessity to our very humanity. Orwell was always a champion of freedom. And there's always a question of what freedom is for. And so he's articulating that. And he's also pushing back against the austerity that is so much part of the left and often the culture at large, 
that everything that isn't bread is unnecessary, indulgent, decadent, bourgeois, uh, you know, irrelevant. There's this wonderful business of a woman writing a letter into the left-wing socialist magazine Tribune he wrote for to just proclaim in what I think is one of the most magnificently funny statements of all times that flowers are bourgeois. <laughs> and you know, she's thinking about flowers as decorative, which of course means she has no idea what flowers are, that flowering right. plants are the dominant, you know, uh, groups of species on earth that almost everything we eat and a lot, you know, I'm here in a wooden house, a lot of what we live in, um, a lot of what our fuel has been, you know, is, you know, a fair amount of our clothing um, is flowering plants one way or another. If we're not eating flowering plants, we might be eating things that ate flowering plants, you know, only, um, you know, mushrooms, fungi, and things from the sea really remove them. Okay, and fern shoots. Um, fiddleheads in spring, remove us from those kingdoms. And so Orwell is also a champion of this more complex version of human nature, of pleasure, of joy, of activities that don't produce these immediate results. And he's a passionate gardener. And he, some of it is he's, you know, when he moves to Wallington, he's terribly poor. And the cottage has a certain amount of land and he borrows some more. He gets goats to milk, chickens for eggs to sell and plants a lot of food. He's raising a fair amount of his own food. It was quite a shock to me to find George Orwell, DIY, back to the earth right. guy. <laughs> exactly. He was <laughs> you know, a little and homesteader. Somebody also, also, who's a whole lot more like Henry David Thoreau, another great political writer and nat lover of the natural world, who also dies of tuberculosis in his mid-40s. The Thoreau, who's a champion grower of melons and, you know, makes the earth say beans out at Walden. So all that was fascinating to me and really opened up who Orwell was in a completely fresh way. God knows, I never thought there was any, I would have anything fresh to say about Orwell because there's a ton of biographies on him, but all the biographies seem to be attached to the same narrative of who he is and also the same narrative of what is and is not important. And they tend to think the gardening is not important. And I think partly in the age of climate chaos where the most important war we're facing is the war, the war against the upper atmosphere the war against the plants that sequestered the carbon for us and are st still every year sequestering a lot of the carbon we release. And um, so, yeah. you know, so all this material emerged and, you know, it was really exciting and really fun and really let me grind a few of my own axes because I do think we're in a very difficult era. We're all called upon to address the climate crisis I have been around activists a lot of my adult life and I've seen people become bitter and burned out as they obsess on the enemy. They believe in some deeply Protestant way that if they just push themselves hard enough, work relentlessly enough, then somehow virtue will be rewarded. And so Orwell also felt like he was portraying a kind of sustainable activism. He wrote some of the most powerful things against totalitarianism, authoritarianism, propaganda, lies, uh, you know, ever. But he did it all while cultivating a garden. And the garden was so important to him that the way he began writing 1984, a book with a lot more botany in it than anybody seems to take 
stock yeah. of. But the way he begins is he resigns from all his writing gigs because he's making a living, grinding out essays sometimes for a week, living in London, which has the most horrific air from burning coal, speaking of the carboniferous and plant sequestering carbon, and is in ruins from the Blitz. And he fulfills a life dream of his, which is to move to the he to a remote island. He rents a farmhouse and a farm in the Hebrides, and he sets up gardening on a far larger scale than in Wallington, um, brings his little son, uh, adopted son out. He's been widowed for a year. He's got TB, he's having lung hemorrhages. You know, there's a lot of horrible stuff in his life, but he sort of begins over with joy, clears the deck from all the other writing assignments, but then he doesn't start writing 1984 in earnest. What he does is he throws himself wholeheartedly into the garden, <laughs> in, into starting this new life, into gardening, fishing, trapping lobsters. And of course, there's also a food crisis. People are living off rations. The diet is very limited. And his biographers, and not all of them, but a number of them, one of them even calls it suicidal because for them living in London makes so much sense and living remotely makes so much, seems so wild. But of course, you know, our, our writer with tuberculosis getting out of, you know, the constant coal smog of London, you know, into a place where his kid can run free is making a, a pretty good health decision probably. And also to have a really good diet, a garden, a food garden. But again, he plants roses, he plants flowers, he plants things for pleasure. Every garden he has includes flowers and he, in his garden journals, documents the flowers. So he's always making room for pleasure. And he does make some headway on 1984 by the end of the summer. But the fact that he does this to begin this powerful novel, maybe one of the most influential books of the 20th century, was really striking to me because we know there are so many people who would be convinced that this was a waste of time, a distraction. Yeah. And and so I love that model of what he does. Yeah. And I love the way you follow a line of how gardens or flowers are also used, not as the antidote to war, not as uh, one of the quotes uh, I think you say from, from him is that uh, planting or being on the side of plants is this wonderful attribute but you you trace this other line this opposing side of where the control over nature or the control of a garden is its own form of totalitarianism and oppression and you do this through a couple of a couple of ways lemons that uh, stalin insisted he try and grow in a climate that was not hospitable to them. And then in how names were erased and taken from people and people were erased and plants were stolen and, and misused. One of the things I delve into is Orwell's ancestry. And he yeah. was, and of course, his real name is Eric Blair. He's descended from slave owners in Jamaica who were using, you know, kidnapped Africans to raised sugarcane for the, which was a hugely profitable crop. So he's got this great, a great, great, or great, great, great grandfather and a few generations before making their family fortune um, in the, you know, off sugar and slavery. And then his mother's father 
and was a teak merchant in Burma. So an imperialist profiting off cutting down the Burmese forests for his own profit as Burma was, you know, kind of a conquered and occupied country. And then his Orwell's own father was an opium agent, which is essentially a drug dealer. He oversaw the growing of opium, which was, you know, opium poppies, which farmers were forced and subjugated to produce this export crop rather than do whatever, grow whatever they wanted to grow, you know, you know, live however they wanted to live because England was, or Britain was using opium to foist upon the Chinese to address the trade imbalance because China had so many things that Britain wanted. Um, Britain had so few things that China wanted. And so you can see these three plants, sugar cane, teak trees, um, opium poppies, all being used as part of a kind of imperial colonial project that's horrifically destructive. I think there's a way that, you know, as with Voltaire's, we must all tend our gardens, that gardens get treated as apolitical spaces and of course no no place is apolitical there's another way we treat all gardens as inherently virtuous and lovely and isn't that nice <laughs> and that's why i also brought jamaica kincaid in who i have admired and learned so much from and just been stunned by the kind of ferocious clarity and insight of her Hmm. writing as somebody who's both a passionate and deeply educated gardener and a person who is herself a product of colonialism as a black person from the Caribbean, you know, somebody, somebody who was taught not about the ecology of her own island, but, you know, Wordsworth's poem with the daffodils in and things. And because there's another way in which British gardening is often almost a cover-up. And the grand gardens in Britain were usually made by driving farming people off their land to expand the territory and creating this aesthetic of openness as you enclose the farmlands in the 18th century, particularly. In my second book, Savage Dreams, and many other books I've written, I've gone, uh, uh, gone back to this revolution in the 18th century. You know, they say, was it Pope who said, um, capability Brown leapt the fence and saw nature was a garden, you know, of wanting not to create the kind of formal geometrical platonic gardens of Versailles and the Renaissance garden, but to create these vast landscape gardens where you tried to do nature only better. And, uh, you know, and they are very beautiful and they help shape our desire to have parks like Central Park. And there's many good things about them, but they're also often made by, by, you know, the economic violence of um, removing the independent peasantry, turning people into farm workers from independent farmers, removing them altogether with enclosure acts that happen again and again and again throughout the 18th and 19th century in England and Scotland. And, uh, you know, so seeing the violence in the garden is really important and it was important to this book. Orwell is a pretty good anti-imperialist, anti-colonialist. As, as an older man, as a young man, his family sends him right into imperial service like his father before him. And he becomes a policeman in Imperial Burma, which he resigns after five years in disgust. And But seeing colonialism firsthand, the sort of racial inequality, et cetera, 
will really inform him all his life. And I think it's the beginning of his political awareness and he speaks up against it. He supports um, Indian independence and, uh, you know, takes some pretty decent anti-racist stands here and there. And so he's informed by it at the same time that his romantic love of gardens isn't separable from the English love of gardens that always has some of the problems of Englishness to it. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think, um, you know, one of the interesting questions that, that you, you keep turning over throughout the book is, is, um, embodied in this idea of how do we, and it's a direct quote from something in the book, how do we rearrange old assumptions and how do we grow forward knowing that this is what the history included? Um, and and while I'm just looking at the idea of that in the idea of gardening, I mean, we we are also, you are also talking about this on several different planes in the book. How do we rearrange and and see more fully the idea of who is there and whose story needs to be told and whose voice wasn't included but whose voice we could we could re re-inject or reintroduce um and certainly keep in the conversation and decision making going forward um and so the 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 garden as a lens serves as a, a sort of a symbolic um illustration of all of these same other questions of um, how we as humans interact with the world around us and with one another, and how do we do that better without becoming totalitarian, <laughs> like it's, um, or self-righteous or, or yeah. inhumane. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, there's, it's definitely a, there's a lot of always ethical questions with gardens and, um, you know, and for Orwell, I think his main interest, he doesn't have a real environmental conscience because he doesn't really see the environment as threatened rather than as essentially stable. Although in his book, Coming Up for Air, he describes an adult man going back to the scenes of his childhood and finding that all the beautiful meadows and groves and ponds in which a happy childhood was spent have been you know, developed and scraped away and, and things like that. So he has that sense of destruction, at least in that book. But, uh, you know, but it is this, these questions he raises apply to all the places in which we operate, the garden and the natural world, as well as, you know, the battlefront, the urban world, the indoor world. And that's something that I wanted to get at as as I've been doing since that second book is right. um, the natural world or the, you know, as a political space, whether we're dropping atom bombs on it or claiming it reflects our lovely culture. And I meant to throw in when I was talking a minute ago that Britain is just coming to terms with the fact that many of their grand country houses were built on money earned through slave owning. And this is something I've always been interested in. How do we see what's at the other end of the product? How do we see right. that these incredibly beautiful, gracious looking stately homes and gardens in the temperate zone are fueled by utter brutality and sort of forced labor, forced agriculture in the, you know, this tropical and subtropical world, you know, this idea of making visible what is invisible, both what is truly beautiful 
and what is truly ugly are lines in in the book. And you know, you could swap out at any point Americanness with the Englishness you're tracing with, you know, our big houses are built on the backs of enslaved peoples or, you know, erased or genocide attempted peoples. And you can exchange capitalism for totalitarianism in this story that you are you are tracing. When it when you come to the end of the book and there is you, Rebecca, having accomplished this really interesting feat of exploration around this other human that you admire and have just researched deeply. If you had to distill down, like, what did his garden teach you about Orwell? And then the inverse, what did his garden teach you about you and your garden? or our world? And to take the second question first, dealing with Orwell and also with Barry Lopez, Mm -hmm. who I was friends with and who died, is it only, was it a year ago or two Two, years ago? Two, maybe, yeah. Two years ago. Yeah, is, um, you know, because Barry lived on the banks of his beloved river in Southern Oregon, is why am I not living in the place I I find most desirable and fulfilling, you know, because Orwell went and did it with the Isle of Jura for the last years of his life. But for Orwell, I think it validated something I wanted to tell everybody else. And he became really a sterling example that often to do the most important work we're here on earth to do, we also need to do things that sustain us, bring us joy, feed our souls, and that other people might be eager to condemn as trivial, irrelevant, indulgent, Mm. beside the point, etc. So seeing Orwell sustain himself, take care of himself in order to do this heroic labor, you know, um, was really moving and profound and felt exemplary. He's not a perfect human being. He's very much of his time. I'm a little annoyed by people who want us to judge everybody for not having 2022 values when they didn't live in 2022 or anywhere close to it. But he's not a perfect human being, but he's a passionately idealistic human being, a a passionately dedicated human being, a person who, while pretty significantly ill for a lot of his adult life, keeps getting back up to keep writing, keep gardening, keep caring, keep engaging. And so he felt exemplary also of how do you live through a difficult time? And I think one of the really tricky things that I don't hear people always talk about, except sometimes in the cliches of self-care, is you can't become so obsessed with the enemy that, you know, it fills your imagination to the exclusion of everything else. If you want to build a better world, you have to practice it a little bit now. If you want people to be free, practicing being free might be important too. And then finally, I think just bread and roses has become a real touchstone for me. I loved seeing these women create this three word motto that insists on the complexity of human beings and our rights to pleasure, beauty, joy, nature, culture, leisure in the face of movements then and now that so often give us these more utilitarian, transactional, reductive versions of human beings that I find so depressing. And I've been 
repelled and feel like my writing has always been against the kind of sit sitcom reduction of human beings where we're just selfish, risable um, people with nothing beyond our pursuing, you know, comfort and ease and advancement in private life. But equally, this utilitarian thing where we're just machines to do our jobs, as you know, is something I've rebelled against. And Bread and Roses gives you a real touchstone for that. Is there anything you would like to add about the importance of our plant friends, our our gardens, our gardening impulse in this world as we go forward from here, Rebecca? I know we've probably gone over time, but there's one thing I don't think we touched on or I said in passing, but what was striking for me is not only did I find an Orwell that I thought I knew, but had a lot of new aspects, but I found a 1984 when yeah. I read it again, <laughs> having met the Orwell, the gardener, that was full of pleasure, beauty, joy, the life of the senses and plants and the golden country that Winston Smith dreams about and then actually arrives in with his soon to be lover, Julia. And then finally, the metaphor of a rose and the rose hip becomes, I think, the powerful metaphor in the climax of the book. And so those roses are really, Orwell worked hard for his roses. The roses are working hard for him. Yeah. And what Orwell, I think, is saying is that how do you resist totalitarianism? It seeks to overwhelm our own capacity to remember, to judge, to feel, to think with a propaganda. Here's what you should care about. Here's what you should believe. Yeah, yeah. Here's how you should forget what we said yesterday and only believe what we say today. And how does Winston Smith do this? He does briefly try to engage in what we mostly recognize as rebellion by trying to join a plot to overthrow Big Brother's regime. But mostly he does it by fortifying his own capacity to remember, perceive, feel, live the life of the senses. He has the passionate love affair. He cultivates pleasures, beauties, memories, connections. And so he's trying to build that robust self that I think in our own time with all the crises of democracy and all the sort of psychic damage of social media and the internet is also important. There's a wonderful sentence by Orwell's anarchist friend, George Woodcock, where he says, the source of Orwell's self-regenerative power lay in his joy in the ordinary common experiences of day-to-day -day existence and particularly of contact with nature. He fed from the earth like Antaeus. And I always feel I'm pronouncing Antaeus wrong, but I'll just footnote it with, he's the being who as long as his feet touch the ground is undefeatable because he's a son of the earth itself and he draws his strength from it. Hercules defeats him by lifting him into the air. So he's lost his contact. Yeah. And so 1984's Winston Smith in Orwell's hands is somebody who's, trying to build a self that can resist totalitarianism and doing it in these ways that are not what we normally hear resistance looks like. And that ties so much to the garden, to these, oh, yeah. you know, to the roses of bread and roses, to pleasure and joy, and, you know, contemplative time, independent solitude and passion. And that was 
beautiful to discover in 1984 and kind of a shock, like meeting the roses themselves, the roses in the climax of 1984 really, you know, blew me away. uh, Your exploration of that scene where he is equating the washerwoman with uh, a rosebud that has turned into this curvaceous, fully fertile rose hip is beautiful. And I think it speaks to that idea of of reconnecting what has been broken and making visible the full circle of what's included in beauty. This prompts so much more, but yeah, <laughs> I think we can just leave it at that. Uh, but, you know, I love that all his rose gardening, whatever indirect purposes it used, whatever indirect purposes it had, had this very direct purpose of providing the crowning metaphor that presides over the entire novel 1984 of Winston Smith being able to see what's beautiful in this woman, this kind of goddess-like working class woman who seems like she will survive and endure beyond the regime, beyond Winston himself, you know, that through the rose he's able to recognize and value her. Beautiful. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a great joy to speak with you and a great joy to read Orwell's Roses and follow your journey. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. And if there's one person who was guaranteed to not see this as just a book about Orwell, you're it. Rebecca Solnit is a writer, a historian, and an activist. Her bibliography epitomizes her wide-ranging interests, from politics to cultural geography to environmentalism to feminism. Her books include such titles as Wanderlust and A Field Guide to Getting Lost, as well as The Far Away Nearby, Men Explain Things to Me, and in 2021, Orwell's Roses, a lush exploration of politics, roses, and pleasure, and a fresh take on George Orwell as an avid gardener whose political writing was grounded and sometimes even refueled by his passion for the natural world. Speaking of plants and place this week, what else? The wonder, beauty, diversity, fragrance, resistance, and pure pleasure of roses. Native roses, that is. March is not only Women's History Month, but also the general season for rose pruning, and a time when a vast selection of bare root roses will soon be available or shipping out to gardeners from our nurseries and catalogs. Anyone who's listened to me for any length of time knows I love roses, and they can be one of those hot topics in the garden world, a sort of flashpoint between ecological gardens and nightmarish visions of overfed, oversprayed, overbred, monoculture, hybrid tea rose gardens of old. A very clear either-or conversation. But rose lovers need not despair. There is so much room for an and-also conversation, including roses. 
we can have our roses and also our ecological function in the form of pollinator and bird food and excellent habitat. Organic old world, old garden roses, especially the single open flowering varieties interplanted with native flowering herbaceous plants or shrubs are one way to move your rose love in a more ecological direction, but so too are native shrub roses. The flowers might not hold up quite as long in a vase or an arrangement, but they make for fantastic hedges and additions to the back of borders or hedgerow style plantings. Our native roses feature the sweetest little rosy faces, pink or red or palest pink to white in spring or intermittently into summer, and they have nice fresh green foliage which our native leaf cutter bees love to use as protection for their babies. And our native roses often have fantastic and colorful edible and medicinal rose hips, ranging from bright red to orange to purple in the late summer and fall. Rosa, the namesake genus of the rose family, Rosiaceae, same family as apples, by the way, is one of the fabulous plant kin whose members are almost everywhere we as humans are. And historically, they've often been carried with us as we move around the globe, although they're primarily native to temperate northern hemisphere regions. That said, there are more than a handful of native species and subspecies of wild rose in California, including Rosa californica, Rosa gymnocarpa, also known as the wood rose, Rosa nutcana, the nutca rose, and Rosa spithamia, sometimes called the sonoran rose or the ground rose, and finally Rosa woodsii, also known as the Mojave rose. In Benjamin Vogt's new ecological garden book, Prairie Up, he highlights the prairie wild rose, Rosa arkansana. In the native plant primer for the Pacific Northwest, plants people Kristen Curran and Drew Merritt recommend both Rosa Nutcana and Rosa Woodsii. In my cousin's backyard garden in Charlottesville, Virginia, summer mornings are accented by the sound of native bumblebees extravagantly enjoying her very manageable hedge of native Rosa Virginiana. And in Ben Whitaker's review of North America, American Roses for Mother Earth Gardener, he highlights the climbing prairie rose, Rosa sedigera, which is native from Quebec to Florida and westward to Missouri and Texas, as well as the swamp rose, Rosa palustris, native from Quebec to Florida and westward to Missouri. While the wild roses are quite adaptable to a wide variety of soils and are even remarkably drought adapted once established, they are also very vigorous growers when they're happy. So keep appropriate size and space in mind or surrender yourself to the joys and jabs of significant annual rose pruning to keep them in check as needed for space, for neighborly etiquette, for fire prevention, etc. But 
if you do have the room, don't keep these beauties in check and they will become robust rose thickets of bloom and hip, songbirds, bees and butterflies, pretty much someone the whole year round. For good native roses for your area, seek suggestions from your local native plant society, botanic garden, rose society, or independent native plant nursery, and turn your rose love into habitat love too. Join us again next week when we continue Women's History Month in conversation with gardener and organizer Kathy Kramer, one woman on a native plant gardening inspiration and education mission. Her Bringing Back the Natives Garden Tour in California's Bay Area is celebrating its 19th year. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and support from the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.